Colossians chapter 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would you bow with me as we just have a word of prayer and ask that the Lord would illuminate what He has preserved for us all these years, that the Word of God might open our eyes and and draw us nearer to Him. Lord God, by the preaching of Your Word, You desire to grow stronger disciples who follow after You. You desire, Lord God, to increase our love for your Son, Jesus Christ. You desire to increase our dependence upon your Holy Spirit, and so we ask you to accomplish all of those good goals this morning as we fix our attention on your eternal word, this trustworthy testimony of who you are. Without the direction of Scripture, Lord God, we would be like wandering shepherdless sheep, Father. We would be helpless and vulnerable. We would be trying to discern truth apart from your omniscient knowledge. And so, God, I'm so grateful that you have revealed to us the things that we need to know. And so we confess today that your word is true and that it is sufficient for your people. You use it to equip us and to grow us up in maturity that we might be useful to you for eternal works. And so, Father, if there are any ideas or beliefs within us that do not coincide perfectly with your word, I pray, God, that you would soften us to those things today, that you would mold us and shape us to more accurately represent the things you want us to know in your scripture. Lord God, we also ask that you would give us a great joy in this process. Help us to be grateful that you love us more than just to save us, but but to sanctify us and to make us holy for you. And so give us a great desire to know your word, Lord God. I pray that we would not be satisfied to just have it on Sunday mornings, but Father, that you would give us the desire to wake up early and get into your word and to read before we go to bed and to throughout the day be thinking about your, your holy revelation, God. We need to know this scripture. So God, I pray that you'd use it in productive ways to glorify yourself and to bless us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter to the church at Colossae was written by Paul for the benefits and safety of the people that lived in that very small town. Colossae was kind of an insignificant little place, and yet a group of people in that city had heard the gospel. It had been preached to them by a man named Epaphras, who had served alongside Paul. He was likely mentored by Paul, and they were in great uh, agreement on what the gospel was supposed to be. So Epaphras had traveled to Colossae, had preached the gospel there, and those who were faithful to the call responded by giving their lives to Christ. We learn in chapter 4 of Colossians that Epaphras was actually one of the Colossians. So it's possible that he had been grown up, he, raised, uh, he was raised in the city of Colossae, had left Colossae, had heard Paul preaching the gospel somewhere else, got saved, and returned to those people that, that he knew because he desired for them to have the same life-changing truth that he had received from the Apostle Paul. So Colossians is a letter. It's written by Paul from a jail cell. And in that letter, he warns believers to beware of empty philosophy, which often presents arguments that seem plausible on the surface, but deviate from the truth of the gospel that they had received in the beginning. Epaphras had built them up 
but he had heard that Paul was in prison for preaching the truth, so he went to go meet with them, and he shared with them some of the things that were going on in the church in Colossae and in the neighboring town of Laodicea, which was a slightly bigger community. And so Paul writes back and urges these Colossian believers to pursue the things that are above. He tells them to focus on what is eternal, what is godly and holy, and to not pursue with much energy or, or uh, dedication the things that are below. Don't worry about the things on earth so much. Those things, Paul teaches them, tend to divide us. They tend to drive a wedge in between God's church, but the things above, when we pursue them, they bring us closer together. They were instructed by Paul to clothe themselves with the example of Jesus Christ, who had suffered and died upon the cross for their sin. So they are to live in a way that emulates the way that Christ lived, to examine the history of his life, and to desire to show the same kind of faithfulness to the Father that Jesus Christ showed when he was on earth. And as Paul is so apt to do in almost every letter that he writes, he urges the Christians in that town of Colossae to love one another, to love one another with a sincere love, an agape love, a godly love that was fervent and dedicated. This is a love that they can now express to one another because the effectual calling of the gospel has shown them that kind of love. They were transformed and made believers because God had poured His love into their lives. They were once dead in their sins before they learned that God had sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was able to do what no other man in history has ever been able to do. Jesus walked in the earth that we walked in, but he fulfilled the entire law of God. That means that while each one of us daily sins against the Lord, Jesus never one moment of his life was in opposition to God's perfect and holy will. He followed every law that God had laid out to us in the covenants. He did everything that God expects his people to do. And so he owed no debt to God. He owed no debt because he lived his entire life completely free from sin. Since Jesus carried no guilt or shame of his own, he was able to take our guilt and shame upon his shoulders. And when he allowed himself to be crucified, when he took the, the death of a sinner upon himself, he crucified our sin and shame, our guilt, there at Calvary, and rose on the third day, triumphant over our sin and death. And this he did so that all who put their faith and trust in his mighty work would be set free from the slavery of sin and made spiritually alive so they can serve him and worship God forever with a joy that only he could provide. And so in the second half of verse 15, Paul tells these Colossians to be thankful. Now there are a couple of ways that we can be thankful. And I want to kind of line out the differences here today. We can be thankful for something, or we can be thankful because of something. There is a subtle difference between the two that's worth exploring here. And I believe that Paul desired both of these forms of gratitude to flow from the hearts of these Colossian Christians. The Colossians needed to be thankful for the salvation that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Christ had come not only to save them and spare them from judgment, but to rule in their hearts. And so they should rejoice for this, this great leadership and guidance that God is giving to them. They have heard the true gospel preached. Their lives have been eternally transformed by the faith that was granted to them by the Holy Spirit. And now they have this good shepherd this perfect leader who is walking along, alongside them and keeping them from destruction, helping them to live life here on this earth. So they have a lot to be thankful for. 
God has provided them leaders, hasn't he? He provided them Epaphras to teach them the gospel in the beginning. And now he's providing additional guidance by this Holy Spirit-inspired apostle, Paul, so that they might not be led astray, so that they might not have their thoughts about God corrupted. So they can be thankful that though they are a very small church, that God is caring for them. They have been given sure doctrine. They have been instructed in how to live that doctrine out. But Paul also wants them to be thankful because of all that God is and all that God has done. Now here is where the subtle difference can be seen. To be thankful for something carries a somewhat narrower meaning. When you are thankful for one thing, that means you cannot be thankful about other things. Your thankfulness is directed at one object. But when I am thankful because of something, that means that the blessing that I am grateful for is fueling a general thankfulness in me. I am more thankful as a person because of how God has blessed my life and because of where he has brought me. So looking back on what God has done, I'm not just thankful for that, but now I am thankful in all areas of my life because of what Christ did to make me who I am and to direct me where to go. The reality of redemption should push out into the way that we live our lives. Thankfulness is not just an emotional response to a condition. It is the new way that we live in light of the great gifts that God has given to us, namely the gift of salvation. So hold on to that idea, that distinction, as we expand our study. Be thankful is not only commanded here in verse 15. There's actually two commands in the first verse we read today. The first part of the verse, Paul instructs the Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Now, I want to assure you, there's no wasted words in God's Scripture. You're never going to read a part of the Bible that's just fluff. I remember reading in my English classes that the great author Charles Dickens was paid literally by the word. And that's why if you read a book like A Tale of Two Cities, uh, they are extremely long and verbiose. There was so much more there than was necessary. But God puts every word into his scripture for our benefit and blessing. So when he says that these individuals in Colossae, these Colossian believers, are to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, he says that on purpose. He's speaking about here that there is a dominion that happens inside of us. These Colossians must be told to submit to a specific kind of dominion, a specific kind of rule, the rule that comes from the peace of Christ. Because there are rival feelings. There are competing mindsets that would challenge the peace of Christ for control of us. And that at times we are deceived or negligent, and so we don't allow the peace of Christ to rule inside of our hearts and minds. Just to clarify, I don't want to make any mistake here. Christ is ruling whether or not we are acknowledging it. Christ is king. And he will always and forever rule upon his throne. 1 Corinthians 29, 11-12 declares this in very clear words. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength 
to all. So there will be times, friends, when you and I are deceived or negligent and we allow some other emotion to seem to have rule over us, but that in no way threatens the sovereignty of the God we have come to worship today. It isn't a threat to His authority. He continues to rule. It is a threat instead to our enjoyment and our satisfaction and our peace. God is always ruling. But when we allow ourselves to believe and behave as if He is not, and we subject ourselves to influences that are never ultimately in our best interests, and our lives will experience turmoil as a result. There are times when the things which rival peace take center stage in our hearts and minds and they begin to dominate in the place of gratitude. Things like anxiety and bitterness. These are things that can grab hold of our hearts and minds and cloud our minds to the good things of God. Things like grief and discontent. Have there been times in your life when these mindsets have overwhelmed you and taken control of you to some degree? Have you experienced a time when anxiety was acting as if it owns you? When you were under its paralyzing control, you were so afraid of what might come that you couldn't even move, you couldn't think straight. Has there been a season in your life when the thing that most greatly influenced your mood and the way that you interacted with others was the fact that you looked at others with bitterness? You held on to some bitterness because of an uncorrected wrong that someone had committed against you, and so that's the way you looked at people with a defensive attitude and and with with, uh, vitriol in your soul. Has the dark cloud of grief blocked out the sunshine of life and and the blessings that God has poured out upon you? Has your discontent ruled you with such an iron fist that you are not able to even enjoy the wonderful blessings that God has placed before you because you were so wrapped up in the things that he had chosen not to give to you, but instead had given to someone else. These things have a gravity to them. And if we do not let the peace of God rule in our minds, then in our hearts, these things begin to take control. Consider the way that we might battle these. There is a powerful weapon that we have to fight off such thoughts and feelings that would leave us in despair, thinking of our lives as incomplete, thinking of our lives as without satisfaction. And that powerful weapon that God has given to us is thankfulness. Clear-minded thankfulness. Gratitude for all that He has blessed us with. Think about the way that having a truly grateful mindset can affect those rival feelings I mentioned a second ago. Let's start with anxiety. Usually we feel anxiety over what we might lose. We've got something great, we're afraid someone's going to steal it or that it's going to die or be taken away, or we feel anxiety over what difficulties or pains we may have to face in the days to come. Remember that even in the midst of our hardest trials, that God has supplied us with an abundance of hope and provision, more than enough to get us through. He has provided for believers the Holy Spirit to help us. The very presence of God dwells and walks with those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And that presence gives us wisdom beyond our own understanding. It gives us courage that we could never muster from our own selves. It helps us to understand His Word so that we won't be misled, or or gives us discernment so we can tell the difference between what is good and what is evil. He has given us the church, hasn't He? The church to whom we gather 
in friendship and fellowship so that no matter what state your physical family is in, your church family can be a support to you. We are here to pray for one another, to, to meet each other's needs financially, emotionally. We're here to, to support one another like a true family can. We've been given the example of Jesus Christ as a guidepost to us to show us how we should walk through this tumultuous world that is so plagued by sin. When we are truly and actively thankful for what we have, our anxieties are drastically diminished. This tendency we have to worry and worry and worry will not fully go away until we get to heaven. We live in a world that is full of peril. But when thankfulness is the dominant mode of our mind and our heart, then anxiety has very little power against us. Think about how thankfulness can overpower bitterness. Bitterness happens when I refuse to feel joy because I have been seriously wronged by someone else. And brother and sister, you will be seriously wronged by someone else. Maybe by somebody even in this room. The church is a gift to us, but it's not a perfect gift, is it? People sometimes break our hearts People sometimes do evil to us. But even under that kind of very real trauma, consider the ways that you have been treated so right by God. Even though people have treated you wrong, the Lord God, praise His name, has given you so much more than, than fairness. He has given you something drastically better than fair. He has not demanded that you suffer for the sins that you've committed against Him, the sins that we all rightfully deserve to suffer for. God would be completely in his right. He would be completely just to condemn us all and cast us away from him because of the sins that we committed here today. And don't make the mistake of thinking that sin only represents the most ugly and heinous of sins that you see in society today. Of course, we look at murder as a sin and and rape as a sin and child abuse as a sin. But in that very same category is the white lie. In that very same category is neglect to love a neighbor. Every one of us commits sin against God. So think about it. Even though others have not treated us as maybe they should have treated us, God has not either in a different way. He has not treated us with contempt and enmity and judgment, but instead put his wrath on Christ so that we might instead be treated with generosity and love and familial connection to him. He paid the price for our sins himself, so that we would not have to suffer. The just and holy wrath of God no longer bears down on those who belong to Christ. So how can we remain bitter over another, uh, um, bitter towards somebody else who has committed a sin against us when the Savior has so generously canceled out our personal debt to Him? The more thankful I am towards the grace that I have been shown, the less bitter I am compelled to be. The more apt I am to exhibit grace towards others who have done me wrong. I don't know if, uh, if any of you do the dishes. I do sometimes when I'm trying to make my wife like me more. I will do the dishes, and uh, from time to time you'll get particularly some sort of meal or some sort of substance that is just so hard to get off those things. Right? I, I hate washing butter knives with butter on them. I feel sometimes like I'm incompetent, like I'm just spreading the butter around. I'm not actually getting it off the utensil, you know? That is until I get the right kind of soap, right? When you add that outside agent, that soap that cuts down the bonds of the grease, then it's no big deal at all. That butter, which otherwise would just smear around and get all over everything, it breaks down and it's easily washed away. 
Thankfulness has the same kind of impact on the heart. We might churn for justice. We might be bitter about the things that are going on in our hearts. We don't want to feel that. But until we can turn our eyes to what Christ has done for us, until we can cast out that bitterness with the soap of thanksgiving, we will continue to strive and struggle. We will continue to just spread the mess around instead of letting God wash it clean from us by the blood of his Son. How about grief? Grief is another formidable woe that we face. But even the power of losing someone or something that we, that we love, even the power of losing that which is real and, and it can be devastating, that cannot withstand the greater power of a thankful heart for God. No matter what you have lost, the very fact that you are alive to lose something reminds you that God is continually, every second of every day, granting you with vitality. Can't we be thankful for that? The very fact that there is something that you have enjoyed deeply, that you have loved truthfully, that is now gone, reminds you that God was gracious and generous enough to put that person into your life, to give you that job which, which provided for your family for a season, to grant you with, with a home that maybe you've lost it now, but you had that home for a time. God was so generous to give that to you. When we have thankfulness as our primary mindset, then grief will only last a short time. God will overcome it and remind us that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And finally, discontent. That is another one of those emotions and feelings that can just tie us up with fetters. That feeling of not having the thing that you want or that feeling of envy over the good things that God has chosen to give to others, but not to you. Our enemy so loves to deceive us into thinking that we don't have what we really need to be content. And then if we want, we better start looking around in the world for it. We better start trying to get it from somebody else. When in reality, friends, we can be thankful knowing that everything we need for contentment is already ours in Jesus Christ. If God is keeping something away from you, do not despair. You don't need it to have his joy and contentment because you have something even greater. You have Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in him, then you have so many wonderful blessings. And you don't need to wish for something more. You just need to enjoy what God has been giving to you. And so you can say as a Christian, I might not possess much material wealth, but thanks to the grace of God, I have an internal inheritance, which is mine because I have been adopted into this royal and eternal family. God has made me his son. He has made me, you his daughter because of Jesus' work. And so now he has promised you a place in his kingdom forever, a peaceful existence that will endure and cannot be taken away from you. Everlasting treasures will be yours. They are laid up in heaven waiting for you. They cannot be stolen. They will never be taken away. And all the riches of the world cannot hold a candle to their amazing worth. I may suffer right now from bad health as a Christian, but I'm promised a resurrection body that is incorruptible and is no longer stained by the ugliness of sin. Remember these things that God has, has given to you as a guarantee, as a promise, and say, thank you, Jesus, for these promises. Others may not accept me for who I am or give me the love and respect I think I deserve, but God has given me an infinite love that is so far beyond what I deserve that it's almost criminal for me to accept it. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace that loves a wretch like me. I may have broken relationships with people that are important to me. 
I might long to be near to those people who I care so, so deeply about. But the relationship between me and God, if I am in Christ, this relationship which was once defined by wrath and turmoil and rebellion is now restored completely by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The most important relationship with me is right. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me from my sin and bringing me near to you. That is the one thing I need more than anything else. Live a thankful life because of all that God is and all that he has done for you, and you will find that some of the most dark and painful ailments that you are faced with in this this life are drastically diminished because of the marvelous light, the gratitude that has the power to overcome them. Now that alone, my friends, is great food for thought. But Paul has more to say and continues in his instructions concerning thankfulness in verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the first part of that says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We've been talking about in Ecclesiastes how the red letters are not just the words of Christ, that everything in this book is the words of Christ. It's all been inspired by the same Holy Spirit. The triune God is unified, so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in what they want to communicate to us. So all of these are Christ's words. As you read that direction from Paul when he tells us to let this word dwell in us richly, it should cause you to ask yourself this diagnostic question. What part do Christ's words play in my life? What role do they play in who I am? Do the words of God dwell richly in my heart? Or do they have a small part of my life outside of the heart and mind? Are the words of Christ your vocabulary for joy? When you get most excited about things in life, is it because you're remembering and thinking of the life that you have in Christ? Are you thinking about the words that are such beautiful promises to you and the great instruction which holds up and which which keeps you from error, which keeps you from destruction? Are the words of Christ the confession of your firmest beliefs? Are the words of Christ the record of what God has willed and accomplished in order to make you who you are today? Or are they simply words on a page, in a book, on a shelf that you can go to for reference if necessary, but are in many ways alien to what you are and what you love? God is calling us to let the words of Christ dwell richly within us. And we live in an age and a day where There's so much information available that we don't really feel compelled to know anything anymore. I can just pull my phone out and Google it, right? I can just live a reference lifestyle. And that's fine for many things. You can use that to remember a recipe that you didn't commit to memory or or, or to find out where you're going if you've lost your way. But when it comes to your most prime relationship, you cannot afford to have a reference relationship with the Lord God. He must be personal to you. You must know him face to face. Christian, make sure that the word of God dwells inside of your heart and that the profound truths that you read in Scripture occupy the thoughts of your mind, that they are regularly on your lips as you interact and communicate with others. And this is important because as the word dwells within you, 
it will naturally begin to flow out of you. Think about that. As the Word of God dwells in you, as you commit it to memory, as you're reading it regularly, as you ponder it and think about it through the day, as you find ways to connect it to what you're doing in life, as this Word dwells within you, it will naturally begin to flow out of you. Paul describes the great outflow of thankfulness of a grateful heart in verse 16. He says, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. When you invite God's word to impress itself on your heart and mind, you will naturally begin to share that truth by instructing others with what you have learned, what you have discovered. So share these words of God's scripture. Share them with your friends who do not know the Lord. Be mindful of the people that you interact with and try to gauge whether they have a real relationship with Jesus. And if they do not, then love them enough to bring them that which has brought you the most joy. Do not, be, do not be afraid. And here's, here's a caution I want to give to you. Many Christians are, are, from the outset, tentative about speaking about their faith. They're afraid they're going to be judgmental. They're afraid that people are going to be offended. But friends, this is an act of love to give to people what is best for you and what you know is best for them. Too many brothers and sisters think in their minds, well, I'll, I'll preach the gospel to my friend or my loved one if God opens up the perfect opportunity to do so. And I would counter that by saying the perfect opportunity is now. Because if you wait, and you have these artificial parameters on when it's okay to talk about Jesus and when it's not, then days can go by, weeks can go by, months can go by, and you don't ever say a word to this person about Christ. They interact with you as a secular human being. And as far as they know, you're not a believer. And then all of a sudden, two years go by, and now it feels artificial to tell them about Jesus because you've been hiding it this whole time. One of the greatest disappointments for me is when I've known somebody for a long time, and then out of the blue I find out they're a Christian, and I never knew. I'm disappointed in two ways. I'm disappointed that that person never showed their faith to me. And then I've got to look in the mirror and be disappointed at me, that I didn't take the initiative to talk to them about the thing that matters most in life. So don't wait and wait and wait, but rather trust that the Lord God is goodness. You are sharing goodness with somebody else when you tell them, even when you tell them about their sin, and you show them the dangers of it, when you help them avoid the pitfalls of being far from God forever by pointing them towards Jesus Christ, you're doing them a great honor and service. You are loving them the best kind of love. So talk about this with your friends. Talk about it with your spouse. Your spouse's soul should be of the utmost concern to you. What better thing could you discuss with your husband or with your wife than the words of life that God has provided to us. They are faultless words. They are reliable words. They are the record of his works. And by these words, we will know his attributes and his character. So speak about these things with your spouse. And I know some of you who are married might say, well, my spouse doesn't really want to know about this stuff. I tried once to talk to him about Jesus. When this service is over, if you have the time, I can stand with you in the courtyard and talk to you for over an hour about long-distance running. And it's not because I care one little bit about long-distance running. It's because my beautiful wife happens to run marathons. She likes that. She enjoys that. And I care about her. Since I care about her, I now know a whole lot of stuff about long-distance running. I know about uh, the special precautions you've got to take. I know about the kinds of shoes you need to wear. I know about the hydration and the, and the carbohydrates. And, and I know all this stuff. I can talk to you for a, for a long time about marathon running, not because I love it,
but because I love her. So you might say, my, my, my spouse doesn't want to talk about Jesus. Well, if you love Christ and they love you, then they can listen every once in a while about Jesus. Insist on going back to it. Don't be, don't be like a dripping faucet to them. Don't be constantly nagging them about Christ. But don't be ashamed of the gospel to the point where you're hiding it away and only bringing it out every Christmas. Only bringing it out every once in a great while. Share with them what's going on in your life. Tell them about the wonderful goodness that God has done in and through you. Friends, as the word dwells richly in your hearts, pass this great word on to your little ones. Teach your kids about this amazing truth that God has taught to you. Just as the Colossians were taught by Epaphroditus, just as Epaphroditus was originally taught by Paul, pass this knowledge on to these little ones. There are likely things in your life, mom and dad, that you are eager to teach your kids. Information and experiences that you want to share with them. Maybe they're family recipes. You love to cook and you want to make sure that that cobbler recipe doesn't die, that it keeps going on from generation to generation. Can't wait to teach your kids how to cook it. Maybe it's the music that has so impacted you as you've grown up. Music that has really moved your soul. So you want to expose your kids to these different genres of music and these different artists and songs. Maybe it's the history of your family line that you're concerned with. You want to make sure your kids know where they came from. Perhaps you have skills that will equip them to live a life that is more productive in the world or maybe will protect them from the pitfalls of life in a fallen, fallen creation. But none of that is nearly as important as what you have come to know about God. God is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. Do your kids this service in love. Teach them all you know about him. Continue to, to educate them and what you have come to find out. You don't have to know everything about God to teach somebody else what you know. Make sure that your children have a chance to understand God clearly because if you don't teach them about God rightly, there's a good chance someone else is going to teach them about God wrongly. So raise them up. Prioritize the knowledge of experiencing God above all other wisdom for them. What else can provide clarity to them in a world of confusion? What else can help them to understand the heart and the nature of this God who is so unique and holy and utterly set apart from every other living creature? What knowledge would provide more relevance or immune uh, or relevant knowledge or knowledge that's immune to the degradation of time? I'm probably going to teach my kids how to tune a carburetor, which is getting to be useless knowledge because nobody drives a car that has a carburetor anymore. You know, that's fun times with me and the kids in the garage. But if I teach them about Christ, that's never going out of style. That is never being replaced with a bigger and better truth. Teach them something that will last. Teach them something that points them to what is eternal. Verse 16 goes on to show us that when the word of Christ dwells richly within us, not only will we want to teach others about it, but we want to express the joy of that truth by singing about it. We want to express it through song. What do people sing about? People sing about what they've put into their hearts, right? The top 40, what are, the, what are these songs always about? The same few things. They're about love, or more properly, they're usually about romance. They're about money. They're about freedom. They're about fun and entertainment and letting your hair down. That's the majority of the songs that you're going to see on the top 40 playlists, regardless of the genre. That's what people in society have put into their hearts. So if you, Christian, are putting the word of Christ into your heart and you're letting the peace of God dwell with you, then you're going to want to sing 
about that peace. You're going to want to sing about that truth. Now, some people might suggest that Christian has no business listening to secular music once they become saved. I'm not going to make that argument. But I will say this. If you have been saved by the grace of God, then the most satisfying music in your life should be the music that expresses most clearly your thankfulness to this wonderful God who has redeemed you. Is Christ the leading uh, star of your playlist? Not that you can't have other music on there, but do you love to sing out? When you pull up next to somebody at the stoplight and they look over and they see uh, you blaring up stereo and singing at the top of your lungs, are you singing praises to your king or are you just following along with the cultural mandate? Make sure that you're singing praises to your God. If you've been saved by the grace of God, then the most satisfying music should be about Him. Do you pursue music that, music that touches upon the noble and important aspect of this life that you're living for Him? Do you only sing about God when other people are around you singing about God? Or are you singing these words as you work around the house and as you work in the garage? Are there, are there evidences of your love for God in the ways that you express your joy through music. And so Paul is showing us that gratitude is not merely an attitude. It's not merely a feeling. It is a mindset that must inevitably express itself in concrete action. And he has more to say about that in verse 17. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, in word or deed, we are doing this as one giving thanks to him. It's in verse 17 that we see most clearly that thankfulness is not just an inward feeling or emotion. It goes far beyond sentimentality. True thankfulness finds its best expression in an active response of honoring the source of your blessing. It may be helpful to think of this by way of contrast. When are you able to identify ungratefulness most clearly? Let me give you some scenarios. You probably agree with me on these. When a person takes what is given and then just goes on their way without any kind of a loving response, no thank you, no affection towards the one who gave, almost a casual expectation that they deserved it, that it was owed to them, you can see right away that's ungratefulness, right? When a person takes what they are given and then complains that it wasn't enough to their liking, that's ungratefulness. That's like essentially looking a gift horse in the mouth. When someone's doing something kind and considerate for you, but they are so picky about the way they want it done that they can't even say thank you for it. When a person takes what they are given and then completely neglects to share what they have with somebody else who is also in need, that is an expression of ungratefulness. They are glad to take, but they hoard for themselves. A grateful heart sees the joy of receiving and is willing to give to give that joy to someone else. So those are all evidences of an ungrateful heart. And they are all things that you and I are guilty of towards the God who is so generous to us, aren't they? We are guilty of treating God like that. Treating him with contempt. Though he is so gracious to us, do we honor him for the ways that he has blessed us and drawn us near? The most appropriate way then to honor the generosity of a sovereign God who is ruling perfectly over all that he has made is to express our thanksgiving in tangible and active ways. And this is expressed perhaps most sincerely when we obey his commandments. 
So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to share with you a verse that's probably fresh in your mind because Sean, one of our elders, started our service with a call to worship today reading this very passage. So Ephesians chapter 5. I will read verses 15 through, um, through 21. The Apostle Paul writes to the believers at Ephesus, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you see the incredible parallels, what Paul is giving to the Ephesian church and what he thinks the Colossian church needs as well? Both of these passages are really very similar. The world is full of pitfalls, so walk carefully in the world. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Where, does, where do we see the will of the Lord? In His Word. So Colossians tells us to put the Word in our hearts. We, the more we find our joy in the truth of God, the more we will naturally want to sing out His praises. So it says here to encourage one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And again, God's people are directed to give thanks in light of all of this. Here the Ephesians are told to be thankful always and for everything. And in the book of Colossians, the parallel is that no matter what we do or what we say, we should do it as worship to the Lord with thanksgiving in our hearts. And I want to point something out. If you have time in your devotions, you can see this for yourself or you can just take my word for it. But in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, right after the two passages we've looked at today, if you read on, guess what happens? They both say almost exactly the same things afterwards. They both address how to live as a practical Christian in the world in the station that God has called you into. So it tells husbands how to properly love their wives sacrificially as Christ loves the church. And each of those two sections tells wives how to be uh, supportive to their husbands and how to be there for their families. It talks to children about how to be uh, obedient to their parents and how to respect them and honor them. It even talks about servant and master dynamics. It talks about how we as Christians should practically and actively be thankful to God with obedience to his word. And so taking note of this, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, he said in regards to Ephesians 5.20 in a sermon that he preached about that passage, he says, it would seem that thanksgiving is the preface to a holy life the foundation of obedience and the entryway of sanctity. He who would serve God must begin by praising God, for a grateful heart is the mainspring of obedience. We must offer the salt of gratitude with the sacrifice of obedience. Our lives should be anointed with the precious oil of thankfulness. As soldiers march to music, so while we walk in the paths of righteousness, we should keep step to the notes of thanksgiving. Larks sing as they mount up on wings, and so we should magnify the Lord for his mercies while we are ringing our way to heaven. End quote. So thanksgiving can be understood to be the foundation for joyful service to God. If you struggle in giving your time and your worship to God, have you thought about how thankful you should be in return for all that he has done for you? 
How dramatically easier is it to work diligently and to, to work sacrificially when you have gratitude towards the one that you are working for? So let thanksgiving fuel your desire to serve your king, and you will not work a day in your life. You will be glad to serve him because of all that he has done for you. Christian, you must not understand thanksgiving as the last step in a brief transaction. Some people think that way. They think, well, I need or want something, so I pray to God, then he hears my prayer, he delivers to me what I need, I give thanks to him, and then we're done. I move on. That's, that's not what it is. Thanksgiving is not the end of a transaction. Rather, Thanksgiving should be seen as the stream of interaction between a God who is ever giving to meet your needs and his beloved faithful who are ever receiving and ever in need of him. Thanksgiving can be understood to be the foundation for joyful service to God. And so my obedience to God is my thanksgiving to God. It is my thanksgiving. I'm so thankful that we are commanded to be thankful. In some ways, it is such an easy thing, isn't it? God in his sovereignty could have demanded any number of difficult tasks for us considering all that we owe to him. But to be thankful is to simply enjoy what good things that he has done for us while honoring him and acknowledging that our gifts come from him. It is a little embarrassing, in fact, to think that mankind even needs to be exhorted to do what should come so naturally to us. And yet, if we are honest, we are quick to forget the generosity of God. We're quick to forget about his grace. So much so that we have to be diligent to teach ourselves not to grow lazy about our thanksgiving. If you've often wished that you were more gifted in Christian service, if you've often wished that you were able to preach, or perhaps you see the people up on stage and you think, I wish I could praise God with such beauty and with such accuracy. Or maybe you've thought to yourself, I wish I, wish I was more rich so that I could give to missions, I could support people, I could help people who are in need. Some of you might have thought, I wish I was more personable. I, if I was more winsome, I could share the gospel more effectively and draw people to Christ. If you've ever lamented that your spiritual gifts don't seem so useful or special or unique, then consider this. Anyone can be thankful. Anyone can respond to God by honoring Him as the one true giver. It is an important duty, but not a particularly challenging one. Not one that requires special skills to fulfill. Regardless of who you are, you can be thankful. And no matter what you are doing or saying, if it is done in the name of the Lord with gratitude, then it can honor Him. When you pick up the word and put yourself under the authority of what it says, you're expressing thankfulness to the Lord. When you prefer the needs of somebody else to your own needs and you put their needs first, you're expressing thankfulness because you understand how generous God has been to you and you're trying to share that with others. When you share with others what God has given to you in abundance, you are expressing thankfulness to God. True gratitude does more than just feel. True gratitude obeys. It trusts. It pursues. In light of the wonderful grace that God has charitably granted to us, a thankful heart and an obedient life is the only fitting response of faith. Would you bow your heads with me as we conclude with prayer?